do you find that your life in Christ is in the same place as it was this time last year? There's been no growth. It's stagnant. You'd like for it to be different, but you don't know what to do. Well, the psalmist tells us just where we can go if we would like to grow. It's in Psalm 120. So join me as we look at the first Psalm of Ascent. Psalm 120 is the first in the group of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Now, these psalms are also known as the Pilgrim Songs, and they're found in chapters 120 to 134 in the book of Psalms. Jerusalem being situated on top of a hill would be the destination of the Jews traveling there for at least one of the three main festivals of the year. And they would sing these songs as they made their ascent to the city. The reminders found in these chapters are as relevant for the believer today as we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We as believers are not to be stagnant, but we're to continue to grow. J. Vernon McGee said it like this, We come to him for salvation, and having come for salvation, we go on to sanctification as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. It is a constant going up. We are to be climbing in a spiritual way. My friend, you and I ought to be farther along today than we were last year. Let's look together in Psalm 120, beginning in verse 1, and we'll look at all seven verses. It begins like this, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The pilgrim, we find, is one who knows the trouble of life. You know, so often we feel like, man, if there's problems in my life, I've done something wrong. I'm not, I'm not abiding as I should be abiding in Christ. I, I've got to do something else. Maybe I need to read more of the Bible or I need to memorize more scripture. Maybe I need to be more active at church or I need to do some mission trips or, you know, we, we go to these different things when we, when we find trouble in our life, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong, but we find throughout scripture that God's people encounter trouble all the time. The word trouble here in verse 1 means it's been translated in other, other, refer, other translations as distress, but, but strong concordance gives us a little bit more understanding with it. It means adversary or adversity. And often, you know, if we're honest, that's what the trouble feels like. It feels like an enemy to me. It's an adversary. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone 
to devour. Does that hit home? You know, can we identify with that? I think if we're honest, yeah, sure we can. We, we, we recognize the trouble in our life is really being our enemy. It's, it's, it's coming at us and it wants to destroy us. And we so often, you know, we're so engaged in that battle. We know that we should live different. We know that we should have a victorious life. So we engage in that battle and we, and we try to defeat this enemy in our own strength. Even though we know that's not how we should do it, we often fall into that trap, don't we? I've often heard campers here at His Hill, you know, at the end of the, the week, you know, and it's, it's really it's really fun to be with them, to watch them grow throughout the years and to see the same faces come in every year, <laughs> but on bigger bodies. And I remember those earlier years with these campers. I remember when they would get up and stand in front of the campfire at the end of the week to give testimony to what the Lord had done in their life. And, and, and the Lord has done a work in their life and they're excited about it and they want to keep growing. And so often what we hear from them is that this week in camp, you know, I learned that I, I need to trust Jesus and I'm going to do that this year. And then the next year they come back, same face, a little bigger body. And they stand in front of camp and they say, last year at camp, you know, I, I learned that I needed to trust Jesus. And I, I really wanted to do that, but I went home and I messed up right away. But this time I'm going to do it. And we get the same thing, you know, every year. This time I'm going to do it until finally something happens in their heart and they realize I can't do it. Now we, we look at the children and we say, yeah, we can understand that. But you know, so often I think we miss out on the same thing happening to us as adults. You know, this time I'm going to get it. That's the wrong understanding of the trouble. It's the wrong understanding of how to deal with that problem. We can't live the life we were created for by depending on ourselves. So the pilgrim is one who knows trouble. This is a part of life. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, not if they're going to come. But the pilgrim is one who also comes to a point where he realizes I have no hope in the world's answers. Verses two to four, again, it says, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you? You deceitful tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Lying lips and a deceitful tongue found in verse 2. This is, this is the, the, the weapons. Are, these are the weapons of our enemy. In John 8 verse 44, it says this, You are of your father, the devil, Jesus says. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the world agrees with this. The world agrees with the devil. And Colossians 2.8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. It's deceptive. We can be taken captive by this deception, which is according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
have we been taken captive by the world's deception, which agrees with Satan. When I was in Bible college, I was sitting in the church leadership class one time, and the academic dean of the school was teaching the class. He comes in, and he looks at this leadership class, a class full of future pastors, future Bible teachers, future missionaries, and he made this statement. In order to reach the world, we have to become more like the world. Now, guys, I I didn't understand yet that Christ was my life. I was saved, but I was depending upon myself. But sitting in that chair, the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and guarded me at that moment. I knew that didn't sound right. In order to reach the world, I have to become more like the world? I turned around to look at the rest of the class, and I remember to this day I have the picture in my head of the students, these future pastors and Bible, uh, Bible teachers and missionaries writing the statement down, and I have observed since that day how the church has taken that path. You know, we, we want to be more like the world so the world will be comfortable with us so that we can bring many to Christ. But is that how we go about doing this? I've had Christians debate me on this. They say, well, Kelly, Christ ate with the sinners. Of course we want to associate with the world. And that's not what we were being taught. And it's not what so much of the church has adopted. We've actually tried to be like the world so that we can reach the world. And this is not what Jesus did. He never took on the characteristics of the world. He never took on the characteristics of the sinner to reach the sinner. But instead, the world, the sinner, the man that was that was witnessing his ministry in that day flocked to him because it was something different about him, not the same. Come and see this man, hear this man. Their witness was that he is different. So should that not be true of us? We must come to the point where we are fed up with all that the world has, all the world's lies, before we can be ready for a life journey of ascent with the Lord. If we're going to go on in ascent, then we must not agree with the world. We must not agree with Satan. 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, listen, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Did you catch that? All that is in the world. Not just some of what's in the world, but no, this is what the world is, is, is full of. All that is in the world. What is it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives or abides forever. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 21, we read this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, he, God made foolish the wisdom of the world. Then why are we trying to be more like the world? The world is passing away. Why are we trying to be like that? All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, why are we trying to adopt the wisdom of the world in dealing with the trials, with the pain, with the trouble that we encounter each day? 1 Corinthians 3.18 says this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Do you find that you're trying to be more like the world in order to deal with your trouble? As long as we believe the lie that there is still hope, there's still fulfillment and satisfaction in life through my education, through my wife, through my husband, my child, my job, my looks, my friends, my government, then we're not ready to be with him. We're not ready to ascend. Luke 14, 26 says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You see, the world tells us that we can draw satisfaction, that we can deal with our problems through our relationship with others, through our positions. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, unless your love for me, by comparison, looks like, unless your love for others, by comparison, looks like hate when compared to me, then you're not ready to be my disciple. He doesn't mean that we need to hate each other, but by comparison, our love for him will look like hate for others. So the pilgrim will not find security from the lies of the world. We once had a student here who came as a non-believer. And he admitted that in coming. He knew full well that he was not a Christian. And he was clear about that. He came here with the hope of being able to find something that his Christian friends have found. A little bit of it would be good, he said. He had problems in his life. And he needed to deal with them, and he felt like maybe that was the best way. But he came to find out. Now, you need to understand, too, he came from a, a wealthy background. He came from uh, some popularity. He had the money. He had the toys. He had the women. He had life the way so many people wanted to have life, the life 
that the world will offer. And he had it to the full. But being here as a student and hearing the gospel presented, seeing Christ lived out in the lives of the staff and the students, he came to realize that really what he needed was Jesus. He found that there was no peace in the lie from the world. I remember when he prayed to entrust his life to Christ, these were his, these were his words. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done on my behalf. I've tried. I've tried and I've tried. And you see, he was very successful in what the world offered. But he went on to say, but I haven't been able to achieve what I've been searching for. And so he said this, I entrust my life to you, Jesus. Really, guys, are we supposed to become more like the world? To know the life and the peace that we were created for? We've seen that the pilgrim is one who knows trouble. And the pilgrim is one who has no hope in the world's answers. Verses 5 to 7, we'll find that the pilgrim is one who recognizes his desperateness. Again, in verses 5 to 7, we read, Woe to me, or woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Mylon Lefevre once penned these familiar words, Without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. Do we recognize our desperateness apart from Christ? He describes um, what it was like for him to live in this, with this trouble. He said it was like he was living in Meshach and Kedar in verses 5 to 6. Uh, Meshach was in what is today part of Turkey, and Kedar was in Arabia. Now, the psalmist is not saying that he literally lived in these places, but he uses these known barbarian and pagan lands as a picture of those who, according to verse 6, hate peace. You see, the, the, if we run to the world to try to be more like the world in order to find peace, what we're really running to is we're running to the system that hates peace, the system that wants nothing to do with the Lord. We must honestly see our life for what it is apart from the Lord. In Genesis 3, verse 27, we read this, So he said to him, What is your name? And what's going on here? Well, this is, this is the account of where Isaac, I'm sorry, Jacob, is wrestling with the man who we find in Scripture to be Christ. And he's fighting with Jesus all night long. Finally, he realizes that the, the, the blessing that he's been seeking for his whole life did not come from his trickery. Remember, that's what his name Jacob means, conniver, schemer. And he was living according to this, true to his name, trying to obtain God's promise by his own craftiness. And he's come to realize now, after a lifetime of pursuing this blessing, that it only comes from the one that he is fighting right now. 
And so he looks to him and hangs on. In the, toward the end of this fight, we find him just hanging on to Jesus. Jesus says, let me go. And his response, Jacob's response is, I will not let you go until you bless me. You see, finally he knows that the blessing he's been seeking his whole life doesn't come from him being like the world. It comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from him depending on the world's wisdom, the world's way of achieving, but it comes from Jesus, the very one he's been fighting. And so Jesus looks at him and he asks the question, what is your name? Now remember his name, Jacob, means schemer, conniver. And so what's he asking him? He's asking him, who are you? And he has to confess, this is me. I am Jacob. I am the schemer. I am the conniver. I have lived a life of dependence upon myself. And it was at that point that Jesus said, no longer, but your name now is Israel. Your name now is God strives. So the man that had lived a life of dependence upon himself and dealing with life has now been brought into a relationship whereby now it is God who deals with the issues in Jacob's life. He changes his name to Israel. God strives. But also in the New Testament, in Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You see, he recognizes, <laughs> there's nothing good in my flesh. Why would I depend on my flesh? Again, in Galatians 3, 3, he says it like this, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Apart from the Lord, we cannot realize his intent for us. You see, Canaan was the Lord's will for Israel. We know that. But they had to be in Canaan to know what they were brought out of Egypt for. Makes sense, right? Well, the same is true for you and me. We who have placed our faith in Christ have been brought into relationship with Christ. But we must abide in him in order to know today what he has saved us for. Abide, remain there with him. In John 15, 5, we read this. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, he who remains in me, he who is with me. And I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you with Jesus? Are you abiding? Or with the world's wisdom? Abiding in the world and that which is passing away. The reality for the one living apart from God's intent is found in verse 7 of our text. Again, where we read this, I am for peace. See, that's, that's what we want, isn't it? I mean, we're for peace. We pursue peace. We're trying to find, trying to find peace in, in, the, in the midst of, of, of all that we're dealing with in life. But he says there's another reality for him. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the reality for the one living apart from God's intent. 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6 read like this, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
This is our goal. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. You see, it's so easy for it to happen to us. It's so easy. We start to slide back into that old system of thinking, of dependent upon the, of being dependent upon the flesh, agreeing with Paul that the desire is there, but there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. I, I engage in fruitless discussion, which is the antithesis of much fruit that's supposed to be the reality of abiding in Christ, according to John 15. So what do we do? Once had a student come to me, and he was one of those students that was leader of the student body that year. Well-liked, just seemed to live a good life. You know, he was one of those students that, you know, me being the, the dean or the principal of the Bible school, really never had any problem with him. He was a pleasant person, and he was liked by staff and students. He comes to me and just burst out in tears and wailed out this statement, I can't take it anymore. That grabs your attention. You know, we all have people in our lives that we look at and we think they've got it together. They, they know what they're doing. They're, they've got to be pleasing to the Lord, but really all they've done is learn how to wear the mask. But inside... There's nothing but turmoil and confusion and frustration as they face the trouble of life. He said, I can't take it anymore. And you know what the Lord had worked in his heart? This is what he came to. Now remember, he's a believer, not a non-believer. He's a believer who said this, I need Jesus. Why is that the last thing we think of? Why is that the last place we believe we need to go? Or he's the last one we need to go to as believers. I think so often, and I'm guilty of this, we think that I have to fix up my problems. I have to correct my mistakes before I can go before a holy God. Instead, he's the one who says, come unto me, all who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. His invitation is not to those who have perfected their life, those who have got it all together. His invitation is to you and me, those who battle with the flesh. And he says, come to me. I'll give you rest. This is the encouragement that we're supposed to be giving each other as believers in Hebrews chapter 3. You know, encourage one another daily as long as it's still called today. And within the context, it's what? It's to enter into the rest that is God himself. Enter in to that life found in Christ, our great high priest. So what does the pilgrim do then? What does he, how does he, where does he go as he faces the trouble in life? And he's acknowledges coming to this place where I'm not living, I'm not knowing what my heart desires. We find all the way back in verse 1, he starts with the answer where he simply says, I cried to the Lord. Andrew Murray says it like this, the one need of the Christian life day by day and hour by hour is this, 
the presence of the Son of God? Is the presence of Christ your one need? He should be. There's this insistence throughout Scripture of repentance. To change our mind, to change the way we think. And I believe it means to be changing how we to be changing our mind on dependence upon with dependence upon us to dependence upon Christ. Jesus insists on this repentance in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter tells us the same in Acts 2, verse 38. In the first sermon of the church, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus again in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's talking about those who are his. Hebrews chapter um, 13, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the Lord reproves, he disciplines his own. And so here Jesus says, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Therefore, what's our response? Be zealous and repent. Don't be zealous in your own strength for God. Be zealous and repent. Change your mind from dependence upon yourself to dependence upon Christ. God does not want us to wait for heaven someday to realize his peace, his rest, his wisdom from our trouble. But this is to be a reality for us right now. Do you see the response of the Lord in verse 1? After the pilgrim says, or after he um, calls out to the Lord, after after he cries to the Lord, This is the Lord's response, and he answered me. He's not hiding. He he has created us for this intimate relationship, and he has restored us back to this intimate relationship in Christ. This is his desire for you in the midst of your trouble. The pilgrim says, he answered me. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer there is describing what life is supposed to be like as man, as woman. We are created in the image of God and God is supposed to be seen in us. And we struggle with that because we already know this day how we've messed that up. How's it possible then? Well, Hebrews 2.8 reads like this, You have put all things in subjection under his feet, under mankind's feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. See, this is true to the creation account in Genesis where we were created to rule over the world. And the writer says that this is our created purpose. But look how he finishes in verse 8 of chapter 2 in Hebrews. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. You see, we... We can all testify to this, can't we? That we do not see ourselves living as we were created to live in Christ. But that's not the end of the chapter. Verse 9 says this. 
but we do see him. We don't see man living the way he was created to live, but we do see him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And it goes on to say that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And then it, the chapter ends with this. He is able. Isn't that incredible? To find that he is able. He is able to live the life as man. That mankind in, its, in his fallen state cannot live. Thank you, Lord. As the old hymn tells us, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth, the trouble, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Guys, the only people that I've seen grow, the only people I've seen ascend in the Lord are those who have realized that in their time of trouble, there's no hope in the world's lies. They recognize their desperateness apart from Christ. They repent, change their minds from their effort and turn to Jesus. I was once teaching in another torchbearer school and a young lady was very troubled. As classes went on throughout the week, she would come to me after every class literally every class, crying. Telling me that she doesn't want to live the way she does. She tries so hard. She told me about her background, and it was, it was a hard background. She told me about her life, and there was much trouble, legitimate trouble there. It was sad. It was heartbreaking. It was crushing her. During the course of that week, she came to realize something <laughs> something that we all need to realize after the very last class of the week she came up to me again again crying and I thought here we go again but no these were different tears she looked at me and she sighed and said are you telling me that I can do nothing in and of myself to change things and I said yes are you saying that Jesus will? And I said, he has and he will, yes. She took another deep breath and she says, okay, I trust him. It was a few years later when I was given the privilege of speaking um, somewhere else. I was in uh, Minneapolis, actually, and uh I stepped out of the back room to go into the auditorium to speak, and I heard someone say, that's Kelly. I turned around, and it was this young lady. And I was really excited to see her because I, I, that conversation was still in my head. It had been years before that we had it, but it was still there. And so I talked to her briefly before the service started, and I asked if she would be willing to visit after, and she was. And at the end of the service that night, I went over to her and I sat down with her and I asked her, okay, how has life with Christ been? And she said this, 
he has answered me. And then she went on to tell me about all the trouble that she's experienced since that conversation we had years before. It had not been an easy life. It had been a very difficult life. But she said this, Though it has been difficult, he has answered me. He has not left me. He has not forsaken me. He has been my enabling to live through these things. Guys, I just want to encourage you today with this truth, something you've heard before. Christ lives in you that he might live through you. He's not there to just observe, to see if you're getting it right. He's there to live the very demand that has been placed on us at creation, and that being God's very image. A small God, you've heard me say before, A small God has to take your trouble away from you in order to give you his life and his peace and his rest. But a big God can give you his life, his peace, his rest in the midst of the trouble. Have you cried out to the Lord? Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the His Hill Podcast. Psalm 120 is a great reminder that we as believers have a secure hope in Christ. No matter where we are in our walk with Him, we have the privilege of calling out to Jesus and knowing His provision in our life for God's glory. And now for some His Hill announcements. You can also keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook for more camp, Bible school, and alumni updates. We have a new Instagram page designed specifically for alumni. You can find this page at the His Hill Podcast. On this page, we will keep you updated with new podcast releases. Our 2021 Thanksgiving conference is from November 23rd through the 26th, and we are ecstatic to welcome Zane Black and Peter Reed as our conference speakers. Zane Black is the director of Love and Life Ministries, and Peter Reed is the director of Torchbearers International. If you are interested in attending the conference, please visit our website for more information and to register. We are coming to the close of a big summer. Each week has been beautiful and good, and we would appreciate your prayers as we strive to finish strong. We would also like to ask for prayer for the incoming Bible school students arriving in early September. We have the highest enrollment we've ever had in Hill history with 70 students coming from all over the globe. Please pray for for the hearts of the students that they be prepared for what God will do here and ready to dive all in. All of our teachers here at His Hill are available to come and speak at alumni churches, retreats, or any like event. If you would like to get in touch with one of our teachers about speaking at an upcoming event, please contact Kelly. Thank you again for tuning into the His Hill podcast. You've been listening to our host, Kelly Doherty. If you would like to get in touch with Kelly, you can contact him by email at kelly at hishill.org. 